Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 857. The month is flying by, as they, they tend to do more and more the longer I live, and it is already Christmas week. We are celebrating Christmas uh, this week. Right now many people are scrambling to finish up their Christmas shopping to have all of their gifts and presents ready on time. And of course, at its best, our giving gifts to one another simply serves as a reflection of the ultimate gift that God has given to us through His Son, Jesus. Of course, the, the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. that tells us that in love for the world, God gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And this morning, as we finish our Advent series, that's been leading up to the birth of Jesus in this first uh, section of Luke, the time has finally come, and we're going to see how the Messiah came into our world. And so we're in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So last week we read about the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah's prophecy about the significance of his birth. And as we pick up the story this morning here in chapter 2, we see that in those days, meaning soon after the birth of John, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Augustus uh, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Uh, he ruled over the Roman Empire from 27 BC to AD 14. Uh, he was the first and is widely considered to have been the greatest of the Roman emperors. He was worshipped as a son of God and uh, someone whose leadership brought peace on earth as a savior, which is all very interesting terminology in the context of our story this morning. So Augustus is the emperor at this point in history, and soon after the birth of John, he decides that it's time for a fresh demographic study. And so he puts out a decree that orders a registration to take place to calculate the population of the empire, a census, uh, possibly for many reasons, but at the very least for taxation purposes. And so in uh, verse 2, Luke connects this census in some way with the leadership of a man named Quirinius, who was over at the region of Syria. And so depending on how you translate it, this was either the first registration while uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria, or it was the registration before he was governor. Uh, but either way, every man is required to go to the place of his family ancestry and be registered as part of this census. Now, a census was a politically tricky thing because they were highly unpopular. Uh, the vast majority of the people in the Roman Empire were poor, and the empire did not give travel stipends. 
It didn't matter what else was going on in your life at the time. Uh, you had to drop everything and travel, in some cases very long, long di distances, uh, to go and register just so the emperor could get an idea of how many of your sons he could draft into the military or how much of your money he could tax, your money that you already don't have enough of. And in fact, uh, a later census under Quirinius' leadership actually incited a major riot. Uh, but in this case, we see in verse 3 that everyone gets up and makes the journey back to the place of their ancestry in order to be registered. Now in verse 4, Luke reminds us that Joseph is a descendant of David, ding, ding, ding. And so he has to go to register in the town of Bethlehem, which is where David himself was born. And we also see that Mary goes with him. Now Mary and Joseph are still described here as being betrothed, which means that at this point their marriage still has not been finalized. Uh, of course, at this point in the story, they've had to work through the various complexities of their unique situation. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he records the fact that when Joseph initially discovered Mary's pregnancy, he was prepared to call off the marriage on, on uh, a case of infidelity. Uh, but then an angel appears to him in a dream and explains that Mary is, in fact, pregnant as a result of God's supernatural intervention. And so he takes Mary to be his wife, although we see here that has not happened just yet. So Joseph and Mary are good at this point, uh, but no doubt the people around them were very suspicious. Uh, there were probably rumors of a scandal going around town, and there was plenty of gossip uh, about what may be going on between the two of them. Uh, but the truth is that when you're following God's will, it doesn't matter what everyone else thinks about it. And so Mary and Joseph go together from Nazareth to the town of Bethlehem. Now I want to stop here, because we have to take a moment to appreciate what is happening in, in this opening section of chapter 2. See, on the surface, what it looks like is that the ruler of the world is exercising his authority to cause people to carry out his plans. Right? But, but below the surface, what's actually happening is that the ruler of the world is exercising his authority to cause people to carry out his plans. And the reason I say that is because what happens in this first section of the story is solving a major problem. And that problem is that the Messiah was to be born in the city of Bethlehem. One of the most well-known messianic prophecies is in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. And in one of Israel's darkest days, Micah looked forward and saw a future day of hope, and he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, and from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." And so the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, but Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth. So how is this going to work? Well, in God's providence, Augustus' registration brings them to the place that the proper location for Micah's prophecy to be fulfilled. 
And so the first step is for us to appreciate what God is doing here. But then the second step is for us to appreciate the fact that this is a picture of how God is always working. Again, as we've talked before about God's providence, we mean that in all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God is always at work to accomplish his plans. As I was studying this week, I thought about all of these people making the trek back to the places of of their ancestry, griping and complaining the entire way because of how difficult and unnecessary this is, and all the while having no idea that because of this decree, the couple that they just passed on the side of the road is taking the Messiah to the place of his birth. Right? God is at work here, and he is always at work. I think of how often we look at the things that are going on in the world around us, the things that are happening in our own personal lives, and we ask the question, what on earth is God doing here? And the truth is, we have no idea. We have no idea what God is doing. But we know that he's doing something. Now, I frequently think about the quote of John Piper, that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you might be aware of three of them. Church, God is always at work. We're reminded here that God is at work in all things. And so while we don't always have answers in life, we always have hope in life. Luke reveals God's mysterious providence and that he uses the selfish inconvenient decree of a human ruler to bring the Messiah to the place of his birth. And we'll see how Jesus was born as we pick back up again in verse 6. So look at verse 6. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So Luke isn't specific with his time frame, but while Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem, the time comes for Mary to deliver. And so in verse 7, we see that she gives birth to her firstborn son. She wraps him in swaddling cloths to keep him secure and warm. And then she lays him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. Now, I always hesitate to rock the boat, but there's a good bit of tradition that has built up around this story for, for many, many years. Uh, Joseph and Mary are often as portrayed as being turned away at the last moment by a, a hotel manager and being forced to give birth in a random cattle stall. Uh, that really goes against how Luke describes the situation. Right? Contextually, uh, in context, we see in verse 6 that Jesus' birth takes place while Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem. In other words, they've been here for a certain amount of time, and they've already got accommodations uh, where they're staying. In the ancient world, honor and hospitality were hugely important. And so most likely they would be staying with extended family. So this wasn't a frantic last-minute search for a place to stay as Mary went into emergency labor. But beyond that, uh, linguistically, the word that we translate as in here does not refer to a motel-like uh, institution or establishment. Luke will use that word later on in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, but the word that he uses here is actually referring to the guest room in a first century house. And so archaeologically, we've discovered uh, that the, the typical house 
of a normal person in the first century world was, was built up of one big room where pretty much everything happened. That's where your kitchen was and your living area was, and that's where your bedding was. But then next to that would have been a room, what we translate as an inn, uh, it would serve as a guest house for friends or family who were in from out of town where they would have a place of their own that they could stay. And then on the other side of the house, there would be a stable area where the animals would be brought in at the end of the day to keep them safe. And so putting all of this together uh, with, with the unusual situation of everybody coming back to the place of their ancestry all at the same time, the, the homes in Bethlehem are probably overflowing with extended family members who are staying together uh, after coming into town. And so with no room in the inn, the guest house or the guest room, the only place that Mary would be able to have privacy in order to give birth would be in a corner of the stable area. And under the circumstances, Mary takes the manger where the animals would be fed and she uses it as a makeshift crib for the baby to sleep in. But, but tradition or not, behind all of the details of how Jesus' birth gives, takes place, Luke's point is to demonstrate that the most important person who has ever lived was born and received into this world in pretty much the most anticlimactic way imaginable. Right? There's, there's, no, uh, uh, there's no fame here. Uh, there, there's not, it's not a large city with all the movers and shakers of society. Uh, there is not even a proper room or, or even a proper bed. I mean, a nasty manger is pretty much one of the last places you would want to lay a child, much less the Son of God. Right? But there's, there's, there's no fame or, again, honor here. There is humility and insignificance. And this really sets the stage for the life that Jesus will go on to live, one that was not characterized by seeking his own comfort and well-being, but the benefit of his own people. As he said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Jesus is born into the most humble of circumstances. However, his birth was not entirely without fanfare, as we'll see when we pick up again, beginning in verse 8. In verse 8, we read, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So picking up in verse 8, Luke tells us that elsewhere in the region of Judea, there is a group of shepherds. And these shepherds are doing what they always do, keeping watch over their sheep at night in order to protect them from predators or thieves. It's quiet, it's dark, it's a night just like any other night, until it becomes a night unlike any other night. And in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of God shines around them, and the shepherds are filled with great fear. And so we remember that when Zechariah saw Gabriel, he was troubled, 
And when Mary saw Gabriel, she was greatly troubled. But as the shepherds see this angel out of nowhere and the, the visible glory of God shining around them, they are absolutely terrified. Rightly so. But the angel reassures them he's not going to hurt them. He's actually come to them for a most amazing reason. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What an incredible message for these shepherds to hear. Today, in Bethlehem, a Savior has been born for them. And this Savior is Christ the Lord. This is just full of, of deep meaning. Right? The word Christ is, is just the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew concept of the Messiah. So that's who we're talking about here. The Messiah has been born in the city of David. But it's not just the Messiah. He says that this is Christ the Lord. And the Lord is a reference to God himself. The angel of the Lord is announcing the birth of the Lord. As Jesus, the Messiah, is God in human flesh. He tells them that the Messiah has finally been born. And then in verse 12, the angel instructs the shepherds to go into Bethlehem for themselves, and they can see the child. And he also gives them a sign to identify him, and that the baby will be found wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Right? And Bethlehem was a, a very small town. There probably weren't too many children that were born on this particular day. But you can guarantee that there was only one baby who had been placed in a manger. And so when the shepherds found that baby, they would know they had come to the right place. And then in verse 13, suddenly the angel is joined by a multitude of the heavenly host. If, if you remember from Malachi, we saw over and over again that God was referred to as the Lord of hosts. And we saw that the heavenly host primarily refers to the angelic armies, and the spiritual beings who worship God in heaven. And, and here, a large number of that heavenly host appears to the shepherds to reinforce the message of the angel. And they describe what is happening and, and its results, that, that this is going to result in glory to God in the highest, referring to, to where he is in the highest heaven. And on the other hand, on earth, this is going to result in peace to those among whom God is pleased, meaning God's people. The Messiah is finally here. This is, is monumental, and much like the, the Allied invasion on D-Day did for World War II, only in a, in a much greater fashion. The birth of Jesus in the city of Bethlehem will turn the tide of all of human history. It's impossible to imagine how amazing, how indescribably Amazing it would have been to witness this as it happened. Uh, but we'll see how the shepherds respond as we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 15. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. And so once the angels have delivered their message and leave, 
uh, the shepherds look at each other and say, we have to go find out uh, what this is all about. We have to go see this for ourselves. And so as fast as they can, they get over to Bethlehem, and they find Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lying in a manger. And when they see, they start telling everybody about what just happened and how angels appeared to them out in the fields and told them about this baby who has been born as the Savior and how they've now come to worship him. Now Luke records two responses to the shepherd's testimony. On the one hand, all who heard it wondered, much like the people who heard about the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist last week. Right? They can tell that God is up to something here. But on the other hand, in verse 19, we see that Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. So have you ever been in a situation where, where you're just so overtaken uh, with amazement that you just have to sit there and, and soak in the experience? I think maybe of someone who goes to see the, the Grand Canyon. What, what do you do when you get there? You just sit there for a minute, amazed at this amazing sight, and, and you just soak it up. Or, or perhaps a, a football player who's just won a championship game. Right? You'll, you'll see them if you watch on TV walking around the, the field as the confetti falls, and they've just got this wide-eyed look as they take it all in, and they're taking mental pictures of everything so that they can always remember this moment. And that's exactly what Mary's doing. She's, she's sitting here with her miraculous baby, meeting strangers who are coming to her and telling her that angels just told them uh, that this is the Savior, that they need to come see him. And as people around town are, are beginning to talk about what's happening here, she's just treasuring this moment and thinking about what God has done and what he's going to do. And then Luke tells us at the end of the passage that the shepherds return to their fields, glorifying God for what they've seen and heard, because it was all exactly the way the angel said that it would be. It's also worth briefly considering the significance of how Jesus' birth is announced. Uh, again, there, there's no uh, royal proclamation. Uh, this is not exactly how you would expect the Savior of the world uh, to be announced and, and received. There, there's no headline news around the empire. There's just a, an announcement to a small group of obscure shepherds out in the middle of nowhere who then begin to tell other people about what they've seen and heard. But again, this is an indication of the life that Jesus has come to live. It's not going to be a life of privilege and prestige, rubbing shoulders with the social elite. Jesus came and was born for normal people like you and me. Jesus did not come to stand over people as if he was better than them. He has come in the most humble of circumstances. He can identify us with us. And, and the inglorious circumstances of his birth show us the depth to which he was willing to stoop in order to save his people, how far he was willing to go. And so in our passage this morning, we see how Jesus came into the world. He was born to save, as God sovereignly leads Joseph and Mary to the town of Bethlehem and then reveals what he's doing to a group of shepherds. And when you think about it, the words that we sang a little while ago are incredibly profound and absolutely true. Uh, when it comes to that little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's true. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem on that day, there, there was a collision of cosmic significance 
as all of the things that have ever been wrong in this world as a result of our sin, met head on, full speed, with the fulfillment of all of God's promises to fix it. And at the birth of, of Jesus, after thousands of years of waiting, the Messiah was finally here. Now, at the end of the day, there are no presents, there is no food, there are no traditions that can possibly outweigh the significance of what God has done for us through Jesus. Church, this is the reason for the season. And just like the shepherds, we have the opportunity to believe the divine message about who Jesus is, and then to go and tell others also about him and make disciples of the newborn king. And so as we prepare to celebrate Christmas this week, let's join with the angels, proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together.